0: All right, everybody. So great to see you all here. Um, My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here, and I uh, have the privilege of sharing with you the Word. Uh, Before we do, though, um, I usually like to have like a little icebreaker question, and so our icebreaker question for today is, what's something that you've been judged by others about? What's something that you've been judged by others about? And so in groups of three or four from behind you, in front of you, uh, let's talk about this question. What's something that you've been judged by others about? It can be lighthearted, it can be deep. You, you decide. All right, go for it. Okay. I'll bring you guys back. Uh, hopefully you guys had good conversation. Interesting, deep conversation. That's a pretty good topic. Um, the first thing that comes to mind for me uh, when I think about something that I've been judged by others about Yeah, I I did think of that, but I thought of a better one. Uh, When I first started dating Deborah, I came to this church, and uh, people would hear that I was Korean, and so they're like, "Korean, Deborah, are you okay? (laughs) Like, is he doing anything to you?" I'm like, "I am the least Korean, Korean that there is. Like, I grew up in." Southern California, I'm like a surfer, I'm not a surfer guy, but I'm just like a beach guy. I'm not really Korean, I barely speak Korean. But yeah, when, when, uh, when people hear that I'm Korean, there's like all of a sudden like, oh, he's this way. He smells like kimchi, you know, like all these, all these things that are just absolutely not true. Like I do not do any of those things. But uh, anyway, so bringing us back, we're going through the series called Everyday Righteousness, and we have Isabella who's gonna read for us our scripture for today. So let's bring her up, come on.
1: (laughs) My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet? Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment.
0: Amen. We are going through a sermon series on the book of James, and, it's ca- and we're calling it Everyday Righteousness. And I really like that title. Uh, the Book of James, or Jacob, uh, that's how they commonly uh, translate his name, I, I really enjoy this because it's about practical holiness. It's about how do we live our day-to-day life. And it really doesn't hold back on calling out those dark corners of our lives that aren't normally seen. Um, because the life of a Christian is a holistic one. The lordship, being under lordship of Jesus means every aspect of our life, every word, deed, and thought is under him, which means there's nothing that he cannot look into or correct or shape. Um, Sometimes our sins are going to be obvious. You know, they're like the decades-long addiction. They're the obvious sin that you're trying to shake off. Things that are like uh, blatant before God, but you're working on it. But other times, our sins can be subtle. Uh, People might not notice them on a day-to-day basis. Your pastor's we might not notice them um, when we see you week to week. Uh, your disciple groups might not realize them. You, you may not even realize that they're displeasing to God, which is why I'm so grateful for the book of James. It calls us out on those little things that like only you can really know deep inside of your heart. And so, it's these little things that are important to God. Jesus would say that every good tree bears good fruit. And every bad tree bears bad fruit, as in the things you can see on the outside will indicate what's going on on the inside. And these small outward you know, actions indicate something deeper that's going on. So we're going to talk about one of these uh, fruit and what that says about the root. And so let's pray, and then we'll get started. Thank you, Lord, for your word for us today in the book of James. Thank you that you are uh, you care about us enough to not leave us where we are, but you desire for us to grow and to be sanctified and to become more like your son, Jesus. Um, I pray that you would shape us today, um, that you would sh- highlight for us uh, the ways in which need, we need to change um, individually and as a church. Uh, and I pray that we would remember that you do it all in love uh, because you love us and we and we love you. In your name, we pray. Amen. So there's certain words that I really just do not like. Um, seafood. I don't like that. Well, um, one of one of the many words that I hope that do not define me. Uh, one of them I, I've said before is disappointment. I hope that I never say the word disappointment to anyone, especially my children or anything like that. I, I hate using that word. Um, I hope I never give off to anyone that I'm disappointed in them because that's not my intention. I, I always think, I just think it does more harm than good. But another word that I really don't like is the word favoritism. Um, might, ironically, might be one of my least favorite words. But maybe some of you guys have been on the opposite side of favoritism, where you're rejected, you're not preferred, you're looked down upon as compared to your peers. Maybe you were the one that was bullied at school for no good reason. Maybe you were overlooked by your, uh, at your job by someone who was not as well qualified as you. Maybe your parents treated your brother or your sister better than you, um, and it was obvious. Maybe you were even told directly that you just weren't the favorite. Those kinds of words, those kinds of interactions, they they stay with you. They have staying power. Like we have a thousand interactions a day. The average person hears over 7,000 words a day across years and years and years and years. But if someone says you're not the favorite, that will lodge itself into your soul and stay there. Favoritism destroys. It's pretty obvious that it's super damaging to be on the other side of favoritism. But to even be on the beneficial side of favoritism is harmful too. Sure, you might get some like outward positive, like beneficial treatment. You get to be um, treated a certain special way. But to be told that you're the favorite means that all eyes are on you. Like if you think about Joseph, uh, um, Joseph, and how he was picked by his father to be the favorite, and he got the special coat, um, and because of that, it brought enmity between him. And his and his brothers, and what did his brothers do? Toss him into slavery, leaving him for dead. They hated the fact that he was the favorite. To be the favorite also means that you just have this reputation to live up to. Uh, at any moment, if you cease becoming the favorite, you can just lose those rights and those privileges to anyone else. And all of a sudden, you're just like trying to claw back to the top. It's exhausting. And I can go on about the harmful effects of favoritism, but there's. A lot more to impact because favoritism within broken families and secular workplaces and schools, friend, that's all understandable, you know, we're all broken people, but favoritism within the church, that's like, that should not be, and that's what James is calling us out on today, and so uh, I'm going to just go through the passage and we're just discuss like some of the themes, some of his reasoning, he has a very great like logical structure behind Um, why favoritism is so harmful. And verse five says this. Listen, my brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And so the first reason, why is favoritism so harmful for the church is because it doesn't reflect the kingdom. The kingdom is an upside down kingdom. What I mean by that, I think of the narratives that we hear um, about those that are rich versus those that are poor right? We idolize the hustlers, the millionaires, the ones who have, could have everything that they want, the ones who just made it big. We think that since they got all this good stuff, that surely, like, they're blessed. Conversely, when we think about the poor, we think about, we don't idolize them, we demonize them. We say this is all their fault. They're the worst of the worst. They're the drug addicts, the lazy ones. They're the ones, uh, the undisciplined ones. They're the ones that deserve to be pity. And they, sh- they deserve the judgment that's going to them. And yet, throughout the entire Bible, from beginning, from the law to the wisdom literature to the Gospels to um, the letters after Jesus um, left, like they all say the same thing about the poor. It's like, we need to honor them. We need to love them. And we need to make sure they're taken care of for because God himself identifies with the poor. Deuteronomy fifteen eleven says this: For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Proverbs twenty one thirteen says: Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. First John 3:17 <clears throat> says if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him how does God's love abide in him And Jesus himself would say this after telling people not to be worried about how they'll get their next meal or if they'll get their material needs he says sell your possessions and give to the needy provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that do not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus is saying that to hoard for yourself is diametrically opposed to treasuring the Lord. To keep for yourself and store up treasure in heaven, or, or start treasure on earth, is countercultural to the culture of the kingdom. And we know this because Jesus himself identifies with the poor. He was born in a small rural town called Bethlehem. Think like the smallest town in upstate New York, but even smaller. And he could have placed himself in royalty. He could have had palaces prepared for him as he entered into the world. He could have had mansions, but he was born in a manger. To favor the rich above the poor, or the powerful above the powerless, or the popular above the unpopular. All these things are taking worldly values and just placing them above godly values. And it shows that we don't value the upside-down nature of the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says, For you know the grace of Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. God is all-powerful. He is above everything. He created everything. Nothing is outside of his ownership, and yet the form that he chooses to take in this world is one of a low, lowly baby, low estate. This is the upside-down nature of the kingdom. The poor are actually nearer to God than you think, and the rich have so many distractions, that, and they might miss God entirely. And in our church, uh, I'm grateful because we have a special situation in that we're part of uh, HOL, the Chinese congregation. And many of you guys uh, who have grown up in like an English ministry as part of like a Chinese ministry, you know, we're pretty similar to that. But we have a lot of autonomy. And we have so much support financially from HOL. And so what that means is, you know, on a regular basis, if if I were to be honest, we it'd be very hard for us to to function without support from HOL. We don't make enough to pay our pastor, to rent the space, to have all the things that we have. It's because of HOL that we're connected to them. But I've known plenty of church leaders and I've been to plenty of other churches where they don't have that safety net. And So so what happens is, well, pastors need tithing in order to continue services And they have this, like, pressure to find the richest people that can commit to their church, to find those that, like, just just people who can generate income for them so they can keep going. And it's not always like, you know, they want rich people, but it's like, I just want to keep pursuing my dream of, you know, planning a church for the Lord. But I also need donors, or I also need people who tithe. It's a really hard, difficult thing, Um, but it's been incredibly helpful for us. Uh, so that we don't have that temptation of favoritism, uh, we are taken care of. Thank, you, thank, like thank the Lord. I'm grateful for that. But does that mean that we, as a church, are not susceptible to partiality or favoritism? Absolutely not. I believe that our church can be most tempted by social favoritism. Social favoritism; those that fit those same molds socially to us, we just want to stick to. Uh, like a school club fair, we're just naturally inclined to just stick to the people um, who are our friends, who have the same interests as us, who have, um, are in the same age group or work in similar industries. And I bring it up every year because I just think it's that important. Some of us just sit with the same people at lunchtime every week and we don't want to talk to anyone new because that takes a lot of effort. I get it, it's been a long week. We just want to be comfortable. We just want to, you know, we just want to get our needs met. And church is a place where you want to be rejuvenated. But there but there are some people who just who genuinely experience the love of God just by you going out of your way to say hi. Many of you guys likely remember when someone did that for you here in this church. And I pray that we won't be a church that operates based on who can benefit us socially who can make us feel comfortable. The Lord is the one who identifies with the poor. He identifies with the socially awkward, the shy, and the quiet ones. We need to be going to them. Matthew 5, 46, 48 says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as God is perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. As in our church, if we have been loved by God, we have a different standard. We have a different standard. We have been received the love, all the love that we could ever imagine from God himself. And we can put, down, put aside our needs for a moment to meet the needs of someone else. And that's how our church will grow in love. That's how people will see us and be like, wow, the love of God is truly with them. Because I see everyone dining together. So that's verse 5. <clears throat> verse 6 says this But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? And so after the writer appeals to the church on a spiritual level. The, the, the kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. He also appeals to them on like a logical level. He points out that they're welcoming and showing favoritism to the ones who represent what's broken and corrupt in society. Think about the tax collectors of the time, and they would charge more than what was actually owed to the government so that they can get a cut for themselves. And they get, um, and so when families can't pay, it's like the same tax collectors who just get them in trouble, and these same tax collectors are the ones who get preferential treatment at the synagogues. It's the rich who are pressing the poor in this case. It's the rich who are dragging you into court and suing you. It's the rich who don't care about what God cares about, and yet that in the context of the church, you start treating them differently. And it's like, well. Does that make sense? If any, if anything, the rich people are the ones that should be held accountable for how they're treating others. So they were willing to overlook all these things but made assumptions on why someone was poor, that they were unworthy of attention or care. So it only highlights even more dramatically these ulterior motives that are just driving these decisions, why someone would prefer one person or another. So even if you think you've seen someone show favoritism, it's like... It's difficult not to be skeptical or question that situation. Favoritism just breeds division in so many different ways. So what's at the heart of favoritism? Why do we do it? Why do we get, these, like, get sneaky with these ulterior motives? Um, why do our hearts just incline towards that direction? And it says in verse 4, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So going deeper, once again, on the outer surface, one might think, well, he's treating that person nicely, that's great, Um, until you realize who he's not doing that to. And then we go further down, uh, are not the rich ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? He's saying logically, it doesn't make sense. But then the layer below that is this. When we show favoritism, we become judges. We want to sit at the seat of judgment and make sweeping claims over people's character. Their usefulness or their value based on some external factor that just does not matter to God. Favoritism can be much more than just choosing the rich over the poor. It highlights our depravity, our desire to be like God, to sit on his throne and to make judgments that only he can make. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Now, I want to be clear that, like, there will come a day when we do have this role of judging, of overseeing. It says in 1 Corinthians 6 that the saints will judge the world. And this is for when we are resurrected, we're renewed, we're removed from sin, um, speaks about this role that we have, sharing in the inheritance of Jesus who ultimately rules over everything. But we're not there yet. Because a few chapters before that, in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, it also says, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. So we will become rulers and judges, but that's not our story now. That's not what we do now. While on this side of heaven, we should not aim to take the judge's seat before we are ready. We do not discriminate based on outward appearances or factors that the Lord just does not care about. We don't administer justice before due time because forcing it on someone while knowing that the Lord's judgment is coming is declaring to God Your judgment is not enough. It's not sufficient. When we choose for ourselves who is deserving of acceptance, especially in the Lord's house, we're making a decision that is the Lord's alone to decide. That is a decision that's way above our pay grade. So the question must be asked of ourselves. It comes down to this Do I trust in the Lord's judgment? Do I sincerely believe that there will come a day where he will judge the living and the dead? Or do I need to take matters into my own hands and do the judging? Or can, is there another way? Can it be that our humble role in all of this is to simply show mercy to everyone? And in so doing, showing them the heart of Jesus so that they can avoid future judgment. I think of it like the difference between a host at a restaurant and a volunteer at a food pantry. If You guys have been to a nice restaurant. I know, I I normally don't go to nice restaurants, but I know which ones they are because, you know, because the host is like, the further away from the restaurant entrance, like the restaurant ent- doors, right? You know it's kind of a nice restaurant where you walk in the doors, and then, you know, you're greeted by a host with uh, this, you know, you're at Applebee's or something, <laughs> and you see the host, but if it's a really nice restaurant, they're like outside in, in the 30 degree weather, like, you know, 10 feet from the door, because they are there to kind of like guard who comes in and who comes out. They have signs like, no shirt, no service, and we have the right to refuse service to anyone. As in, the host can choose whether or not to kick you out of the restaurant or to sit you at the nicest seats. But the rule is, they reserve the right to determine what your experience is at the restaurant. That's just how it works. Contrast that with volunteering at Stacy's Pantry. If you come to the pantry, your role as a volunteer is just to hand out food to whoever comes. It doesn't matter where they come from or what they're wearing. You serve everybody and you don't get to choose what gets given to them or how much each person gets. You simply administer what's been given to you, right? This is what it looks like to be ministers of mercy and not judgment. We see each person as infinitely valuable and worthy of our attention and care. We ensure that the poor and needy are taken care of in our midst, and we leave the judgment for the Lord. He doesn't need us to schmooze and to network to get more tithes in. He's completely capable of handling all of our needs. We're just volunteers passing down the mercy that has been given to us. Now, there are certainly questions floating around in our heads, right? What, What about this? What about the exception? Is this really in line with what God says or what his character is? And I want to be clear, God himself does not show favoritism. Numerous times in scripture, it says this. Romans 2.11 says, for God shows no partiality. Ephesians 6.9 says, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. Colossians 3.25, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. When it comes to judgment, the Lord does not show favoritism at all. But you might ask, well, didn't he choose Israel out of all the nations? Isn't that like a form of partiality? And I had to wrestle with that a little bit, but there's a difference. There's a few differences. And the one main difference is this. That I think there's, I want to distinguish the difference between favoritism and favor. I want to differentiate partiality and and grace. And the difference is that with grace, there's just no expectation of payback. It's a free gift. There's no ulterior motive of trying to win over the affections of the rich. There, There might be a desire to intentionally focus on lifting those up with practical needs, but it's not to pull yourself up or to be seen by others. It's simply grace. It's a free gift. But favoritism underlies all of that, And says, well, if I help this person, they'll help me in the long run. Or if I talk to this person, maybe they can hook me up with that opportunity. Or if I help this person, maybe that person will see me and think, oh, he's such a cool person. God does not show favoritism as though we could help elevate his status. He doesn't bless people with the hopes of earning the approval of one of us here on earth but everything he's given to us from our lives to this planet that we live on, our material blessings, our spiritual blessings in relationship with him. It's all grace. It's all simply because he loved us and not because we were worthy of his love. There's a difference between favoritism and favor. The other thing that's different is favor brings people from outside of your set into your set favor brings the lonely into families favor invites the unbeliever into church community and relationship with god but favoritism divides people from within your set like nobody is surprised when i treat ray and luna better than the other kids in our church nobody is surprised by that i should be i'm the father i should be doing that but if i start to buy Ray gifts and not Luna or the other way around, then that's sending a very clear message, right? That's not favor, that's favoritism. I'm dividing the set. So James, or Jacob's line of thinking so far has been, don't show favoritism. Why? Because it's not reflective of the upside-down kingdom, because it highlights the hypocrisy among the church when we have ulterior motives, and it shows that We want to be the ones judging rather than God. And when we judge before the due time, we ourselves are falling into sin. And then Jacob continues on with verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So this is what he's saying. As humans, as humans, we are all on the same page. We all fall short of the glory of God whether we sin by not treating the people we, the way we should, or something just as blatant as murder that makes us all breakers of the law. And it's not saying that all sins are the same, right? Some sins have drastically more consequences than the others. But when it comes to our standing before God, we are all the same. We are utterly without hope of salvation apart from Jesus. Like... All of you guys, I'm sure, are just upstanding people, very nice folks, but you and I are in just as much need of a savior as any murderer on death row. And the more we realize that, the more we realize just, man, what grounds do I have to judge other people? Paul, if Paul, the writer of so much of the New Testament, the writer of the Bible, would call himself chief of sinners, then what hope is there for me? But when we trust in the finished work of Jesus, we are freed from just that exhausting tyranny of being judged by our works. Our acceptance from God is not based on how good we are, how much money we make, how many times we pray a week. But praise God, we're no longer under the law of judgment. We have been saved only by having faith in Jesus' perfect life, lived out, poured out for us. We're freed from that. And so even though God will not look at our wrongdoings, our checkered past, our dark history, he's not going to look at that anymore. But he will, now get this, he will look at our lives. And he'll say, show me the fruit of your faith. He'll say, how did you pass on the mercy that I showed you? Did you live without judgment? Did you love without discrimination? Did you sit by that person at the lunch tables? Did you serve yourself or others while you were serving me? You know, the most common way that I hear Blueprint described to others is that we're like a family. We're very close to one another, really tight-knit relationships. And we're not afraid to go deep with one another. And I love that about our church. And I'm just so grateful to have this. It's it's such a rare and special thing, what we have. But there's a similar question that I hear very often. And it's, why did that person leave the church? And I hear kind of the other side of the same coin. I hear, I felt like I wasn't part of the in-group. I didn't feel seen or heard I didn't feel like I had friends here like blueprint is known to be familial in relationship and those that don't experience it have real hurt there's a danger in being so tight-knit and family-like in our interactions and relationships but that means there's super high expectations when people start coming to our church if they hear we're a family then why doesn't it feel like it for me How come other people are hanging out without me? Or how come I don't feel seen or heard? And I believe that our church can grow in this regard. I'm praying for God to change our hearts, to reorient our souls away from just being inward serving to outward focused. I'm praying that our church, everyone from, from Pastor David to the newest person in our disciple group would be contributors to our church feeling like family to everyone who comes in. That no one brother or sister in Christ would be excluded, no matter how different or inconvenient they are to love. Let mercy triumph over judgment in this church. Some closing thoughts. Are there exceptions to this? Well, there's some scenarios where we need wisdom to discern whether or not maybe someone is unsafe or unfit. Um, to be in a service. There's times where we need to call for help because we know that our church is not equipped to be the church for every person on the planet. We know that. We know our limitations. Also, this doesn't mean that if someone was causing destruction in our church that we wouldn't do anything about it. There's a reason why Jesus would tell us to beware of sheep among wolves or those false prophets who try to share a gospel apart from him. So I'm not saying that, you know, It's a one-size-fit-all type thing. But I'll be honest, the way that we operate here at Blueprint is not one of rigid overprotection. I think the way we operate, and Pastor Davis says this a lot, and I've, I've embodied this, and I love it, is we err on the side of grace. We err on the side of grace. Like, if I'm wrong, I hope it's because I showed too much grace. And if I got hurt for it, then that's, you know, there's more grace given to me. I want to err on the side of grace. And if I'm hurt for it, I know that the Lord will restore me. I know that I have all that I need in him. And this also doesn't mean that discipleship and discipline goes out the window. So disciple groups are still on. In the context of our Blueprint brothers and sisters who are obviously committed to walking with Jesus, then I hope that in that context we would be open to correction to growing together to be more like Jesus. We have that common goal. But when Jacob is speaking of favoritism here, he's speaking more of those outside of that inner set. Maybe they're newcomers. Maybe they're um, not Christian. Maybe they're they're the ones that we should be treating with favor. And lastly, I want to speak to those who maybe have felt like Man, maybe you felt like you were judged. You felt like you've been overlooked, uh, unfairly put aside for someone else based on how you looked, how you acted, any other superficial attribute. If you've experienced that from, oh, pray not, but like in this church, then I just, I'm so sad. Like, I am I feel so sorry. Like, this passage has shown me there's so much room for me to grow in um, this regard and But maybe there's others that you've experienced this with at this church, maybe from your school or home or another place. I just want to say that the Lord sees you. And it's okay to be upset and sad about it. We live in a difficult time in a world tainted with sin. And this is the nature of the place that we live. We screw up. But if there is anyone who understands what it's like to be improperly judged by external factors there's anyone who has been unfairly punished or exiled by his own people, if there's anyone who's been rejected by the people he cares about, it's Jesus. Remember that Jesus was the one rejected by people in his own hometown. They dismissed him as Messiah because they just thought he was just some carpenter boy. Jesus was the one who had an entire crowd of people he was trying to save, yell, crucify him. And this is the Lord Jesus that we worship. Someone who has been where we've been. Someone who knows firsthand the harmful power of favoritism. And you know, the tendency of human nature is simply just to pass to others what's been passed down to us. If we've been hurt, if we've been traumatized, if we've been judged, then we want to pass that judgment on to others. It's natural. But praise God that He can change our nature. So, if we, as fellow believers, have been accepted by the one whose opinion most matters, if we have been shown mercy by the Most High King, then let's take our places, not like hosts at a fancy restaurant, but like volunteers, administers of mercy and be the unbiased, unselfish, bold and mercy body of Christ that he died to purchase. Let's pray. God, we know that favoritism, partiality is not your character. We know that there are ways for us to grow. There are ways that all of us have fallen short in this regard. But there, there is hope. Because you who were rich became poor for, this, for our sake so that we might become rich. Lord, I pray that you would meet all of our needs so that we might, in our abundance of love for you, pour out to those that need you. Help us to be like administers of mercy rather than hosts at a restaurant. And I pray that we would err on the side of grace as we give to those uh, who just want to be near you. Lord, we turn our attention away from ourselves. We focus on you and who you care about. Pray that that would start today. In your heavenly name we pray. Amen. During this time of communion, Jesus welcomes everyone to the table. Jesus dined with sinners, and I was held against him. But it is such a privilege to be able to share the Lord's table with you today. I'm honored to commune and dine with my fellow brothers and sisters who call Jesus as Lord. It doesn't matter what you've done this week, it doesn't matter how you've fallen short or how few times you opened the Bible app, the Lord wants to commune with you today. And so, as we look to him, his broken body, his shed blood, we partake in the Lord's Supper. Just know this, man, God loves you. He wants to spend time with you. And he wants to fill you up to the point of overflow so that you can, with confidence and boldness, say, The Lord is my shepherd. I have no wants, I'm content. So I invite you guys now to join me um, Yeah, in receiving the body and the blood of Jesus. Let's commune together. Come on. The other special thing about communion is that we get to do that not just as one church here in Manahall, Hall, but we join with the churches around the world who proclaim Jesus as Lord. Our church family is so much bigger, so much bigger than what's here. And what's beautiful about that is you'll have people from nations that we just know nothing about, from backgrounds that we just absolutely just can't identify with, who will be able to worship together with in heaven. People from every socioeconomic status people from every background and race and you know family upbringing and so many different things this is just a glimpse of of heaven and i pray that the lord would transport us to that moment Give us a glimpse of what heaven is like because when we see the multitudes coming together and praising Jesus, we're going to realize that most of them don't look like us. Most of them don't think like us. But by the grace of God, we're all family. And this is the picture that I pray would just wrap around all of us as a church, that we would be tied, more closely tied together because of it. Let the blood of Jesus and our communion together be what draws each other near. And so God, I pray that you would break this hold of favoritism amongst us. I pray that you would rid ourselves of this narrow view of this kingdom we're trying to build. But Lord, would you show us your kingdom? Give us a glimpse of your, your majesty, Your, um, what it will look like in heaven. Help us to lay down our, our fleshly desires and desire and delight to commune with the people that you've loved and saved. God, we thank you for saving us, for bringing us into a family, bringing us into a place of belonging, We love you. Praise your name forever. In Jesus' name, amen. So with all of God's people, both in here and everywhere else, I pray that we would stand up and let's worship the Lord together. Come on. Yes, thank you, God, for showing us this picture of heaven. All the poor, all the powerless, all those who are thirsty, we'll all be gathered together singing your praises. And Lord, when we aim to make it our goal to not have to wait until we die for that to happen here, Lord, amazing things can happen. Lord, may we be a church that aims to break the habit of favoritism, and partiality. Or rather, we would be a church that shows favor, that errs on the side of grace as a response to the grace that you've given us. Thank you, Lord, for your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen receive this blessing. May the love of God, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all today. We're going to go have lunch.
1: Go sit with someone new.